I'm glad we had announcements and a song between the catechism and now because that is a tough act to follow, but I'm going to do my best. Um, before we get started, I ask that you might whisper a quick prayer for me. I had um, earlier this week I had a cold, which I'm completely over by now, but I've had a lingering cough and my voice is not back to where it normally is. Um, and so if by the end of this sermon it gets a lot deeper and more raspy, I just... Uh, that's not an effect that I'm intentionally putting forward, so um, just pray that I make it through the whole thing. But I'm going to do my best. have some water up here anyway. Um, but before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths that you've given us in your word. We're thankful for the, the summary of those truths that faithful men throughout the history of your church have given us and things like confessions of faith and, in, and catechisms, Lord. We, we hold these things in high regard, but we recognize that they are but secondary to Scripture and what you have re- revealed there, what you have revealed in the light of your Son, what you have revealed in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray for the Spirit's help during this time as we come before you and we come before your Word, that we see it for what it is, that we believe the things that Jesus has proclaimed about himself, that we have hearts that are open, that we have hearts that are pure, that we have hearts that are delighted to hear the things that are presented forth in your word, Lord. Lord, and I pray that as we're going to read tonight, that it is, it is your will whenever someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray that it is your will that people are saved during this very hour. Even these children, Lord, that have said these truths tonight, may these things be driven into their heart. May they hear the things that are said in your word tonight and expounded upon Lord, may you give them repentance and grant them repentance. We know that there is none that come to you. There is none that come to your son other than the ones that you have already given him. And we pray that even this very night that your kingdom is increased, Lord. We pray that as we go forth into these go-tell crusades that we've had this emphasis on recently, Lord, that your kingdom is increased, that your kingdom is increased truly, that there is no false sense of assurance but we are confident because your son has told us that all you give him will be saved. There will be none that will be left behind. There will be no resistance to that. Lord, we pray for those souls. We pray for those that we will interact with, that we will bring them truth, truth that is firm, but truth that is graceful. Lord, we thank you for gathering us together on this night. We pray for a blessing of your Holy Spirit during this time that we're together. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So now that we have concluded our sermon series through the book of Exodus that Prashant finished last week, a couple months ago, Prashant and Dirk and I, we met together um, and just kind of decide where we were going next. And so we've kind of mapped out a plan and uh, we wanted to start a new book from the New Testament, because Pastor Thomas is likely going to something from the Old Testament um, at the start of the new year, so we were going to do something from the New Testament. So we're going to start something then, and we wanted to cover something topical, because we have seven, about seven evening services before the start of the new year, and so we were trying to look for something that would fit nicely for the rest of those evening uh, sermons through the rest of the year, 
And we were kind of debating a few options for this. And the Prashant just kind of casually observed, in Prashant's kind of casually observant way, usually. He says, you know, Jesus has the seven I am statements in the book of John. And that was, you know, literal epiphany there, you know, a word from God. So it's a literal epiphany from Prashant. So we landed there. And so here we are. And so for the next seven sermons, seven evening sermons, we're going to be studying Jesus's I am statements from the book of John and the order that they occur in that book. And so I've been tasked to, with the first of these tonight. The primary passage is going to be from John chapter 6. But before we get there, I'm actually going to give a very brief introduction that falls a bit out of order for, with the other I am statements. And so what this is going to do, this is going to really set the context for what Jesus is really communicating through all the other I am statements. Okay, so it's, it's going to be very important. I'm going to urge you to really pay attention right now, especially you little ones, because this is, this is important stuff. The catechism that you've just done is important. This is important too. So I'm going to, because it's so important, I'm going to repeat my starting premise during each of my sermons. I think I have three of them. During each of my sermons, I'm going to repeat this premise every time, and I might even ask Dirk and Prashant to do the same thing. This is probably the first that they're hearing about it. So I want you to turn with me to John chapter 8. I told you our primary text is going to be from John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. <coughs> but we're going to start off tonight in John chapter 8. And the passage I'm about to read actually comes after two of the other I am statements. So we're going to get the first I am statement tonight, and the next one, um, I guess, in two weeks. But to, before we start that, I'm going to go to John chapter 8 and give you a different I am statement. And so you're going to see why this is so important in just one second when we read it. But before we read it, the setting here is that Jesus and the Jews are having a very intense argument. Okay? They're having a very intense argument. They're having an argument because Jesus has called them the sons of the devil. Okay? They've called, he called them the sons of the devil, and their response is that they accuse Jesus of having a demon. Okay? You can see why this might be a bit of an argument here. And so they have called Jesus demon-possessed. And so we pick up in verse 51 of John chapter 8. And this is, this is Jesus talking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word... He will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And all the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? So Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So if you haven't seen it by now, this is a powerful passage, powerful passage. Why do the Jews pick up stones to throw at 
throw at Jesus. Now we get this recorded. John's recording this in Greek, right? We have it translated over to English. He's recording it in Greek. Jesus is probably speaking Aramaic with these Jews, possibly Hebrew, probably Aramaic. But it's obvious to them what Jesus is saying when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Because they try to stone him to death. Because in their eyes, he has committed the most egregious form of blasphemy. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is not playing with words. He's not being coy. He's just not throwing words around here. Jesus is making a direct claim to his divinity. And you remember Exodus 3? We just came from Exodus, already making connections back. How did God introduce himself to Moses at the burning bush? When the people asked Moses who sent him to liber- who sent him, specifically him, to liberate them, what was Moses' response supposed to be? It was supposed to be, Tell them I am sent you. So Jesus here, Jesus has the opportunity to say, Before Abraham was, I was. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't waste any words. Jesus never wastes words. Instead, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so this is why the Jews are incredulous. This is why they immediately pick up stones and try to kill him, because he is making a direct claim to be one and the same as the covenant God, Yahweh. Okay. <clears throat> so I want you to keep in my, this in mind as we're going through the rest of the seven other I am statements. Okay. Each one of those other statements has to be viewed as corollaries to Jesus' claim of divinity here. Okay? All of these other ones are going to be kind of subsets of this. They're going to be claims to divinity too. But here it's a very direct claim to divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. Yahweh and I are one. And so these statements, all the other statements, they cannot be fulfilled by one who is not God. They can't be. Whenever we look at them, you'll see that. But they also cannot be fulfilled by one who is not man. Because the God-man, truly God and truly man, he has, the one, he has to be the one that is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the vine. And this is for our benefit and for God's glory. So let's begin with the first of the I am statements. I am the bread of life from John chapter 6. And we're reading a lengthy passage, 22 through 58. <coughs> this is the word of the Lord. <coughs> on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, 
What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give you, for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whosoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. <coughs> Excuse me. So there was a period of my life in my early to mid-20s that I lost about 120 pounds. I did it through a variety of methods, nothing extreme. Mainly consisted of a discipline of lifting weights, eating less and better than I used to, and I played a lot of rugby during the time too. And the metabolism of an early 20-year-old male, does, that helps out quite a bit too. So, but to get that last 20 or 30 pounds off and to get in the best shape that I've ever been in in terms of like body fat and muscle, that kind of stuff, I had to get rid of carbs. And, or I only had to consume them at very strategic times. And so if you know anything about bread, you know that bread is all carbs. It's all carbs and nothing but carbs. 
So no carbs means no bread. And my body actually responds very, very well to low or ultra low carb diets. But that kind of leaves in a bit of conundrum for me because the Bible actually speaks very positively about bread. So I'm I'm left uh, in a bit of a catch-22 there. I do really well without bread, but the Bible says bread's a good thing in most parts. (coughs) Because, you know, bread is used in the sacrificial system as an offering to God. Uh, Breaking bread together is very often a figure of speech to indicate communion and, and fellowship, especially amongst believers. And then in two very direct verses, Psalm 104 says that bread strengthens a man's heart and that this bread is a gift from God. So that seems to be a good thing there. And then likewise, Ecclesiastes 10.19 says bread is made for laughter. Bread seems to be a pretty good thing in in the scriptures. Um, Conversely, there is actually a peculiar instance in the book of Ezekiel when Ezekiel is first beginning his public ministry that he is told by God to eat a very meager portion of about that much of some, this was only his, his only food that he could have during the day. And it was going to be very nasty bread. If you read the description, it's made from nasty meal and it's cooked on human dung. Um, but so it's very nasty bread that he eats. And that's to be his only food for 430 days. Yeah. And this, in this instance, in both its taste and its dearth, this bread actually signified that God's curse is upon Judah throughout, through this famine. So Bread is a good thing, and when God withdraws the bread, it's a bad thing. Um, But then we also know that bread, even good bread, unlike what Ezekiel had, is not enough because Jesus rebukes Satan whenever he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So bread is good, according to scriptures, obviously, but it's not everything, at least not physical bread. It's not everything because we can't live by this alone, according to Jesus. <clears throat> but the majority of the time when it's described in the Bible, bread is a good thing. Physical bread is. But it's not enough. It says we need something else. We need a spiritual bread to really satisfy our souls. And so the Jewish people that Jesus is speaking to in the passage that we just read, they don't understand this. It's obvious they don't understand this. They had followed him simply because they had just been fed a meal and they wanted to be fed again. We didn't read it, but before this is when Jesus feeds the thousands, right? And then they followed him around the lake and they go back to him just because they had been given a meal. And Jesus even goes on to tell them that, look, y'all didn't come over here because y'all saw the miracles. I mean, that seems to be a good reason to follow Jesus, right? He performed all these amazing miracles, but they just wanted another, another meal, that's the, that's the whole reason why they followed him around the, the lake there. And they, they demonstrate that they don't understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual things at all. Because in verse 34, they're kind of, they're kind of buying into what he says. And he said, yes, give us this bread always. We want this bread that is never going to, we'll never be hungry again and we'll never be thirsty again. Give us this bread. But then in verse 52, they're confused and they're mad when Jesus tells them, no, I need you to, to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So they think they, he's talking literally about this, right? So they want it, but then they said, no, 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 we don't, we don't want that because they're taking Jesus literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But Jesus, Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is talking about spiritual nourishment here. They are expecting a sign that they can believe because they specifically asked for one. What are you, are you going to give us a sign? You're going to give us a miracle? 
But they had just witnessed the miracle, right? They had just witnessed the miracle about the bread and the fish that they had just witnessed the day before that. So they don't need another sign. <coughs> but they, they even try to show Jesus that the manna that their fathers were given, that's a sign. So he's got to do something similar. But Jesus, with his direct speech that he always has, tells them that he is here, that he is the manna. Okay? The manna that their fathers had, it was just pointing to him. He is the true manna. He came down from heaven. He was sent by the Father. And this is another direct claim to his divinity, right? He sent from heaven, directly down from heaven. But there's, there, there's actually a problem occurring in the situation, at least in the minds of these people, because the people that Jesus is talking to, they see him. They can see him standing right in front of him. They have seen his miracles. They have heard his words, but they don't believe. Right? A lot of people think this, and a lot of people think the same thing our days. They thought this then was that if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. God needs to prove that he is God let him show me a miracle. We could we got evidence right here. There's evidence all over the New Testament that seeing a miracle is not going to be enough to make them believe. But they don't believe. Why don't they believe? Well, it's because that it has not been granted to them by the Father. <clears throat> so this may be difficult for us to hear. It's difficult for a lot of people to hear. A lot of people that love the Bible to hear this. But uh, I've often heard it said that Jesus was the first Calvinist. Um, Jesus was the first and Paul was the second. I've often heard it say that. But uh, this passage seems to confirm that Jesus is quite the Calvinist. Uh, No less than six times in this passage and then the next paragraph does Jesus say that no one can come to him unless it has been granted to him by the Father. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Salvation is a work of God, and it's only a work of God. There can be no synergism. There is no synergism at all here. And the other thing that Jesus says is there's not any resistance. Anyone that the Father gives him is going to come to him. There is no resistance there. And so we have, no one has any ability to contribute to any part of our conversion or salvation. And we also have no ability to resist when grace gets a hold of us. Jesus makes it clear in this passage that these things are true. Many people, when they encounter with, the, they encounter with these truths, they are tempted to respond like the disciples in verse 60. Now, we didn't read that far, but in verse 60, there is, the disciples say, well, this is a hard saying. And they could be right, you know. It can be a hard saying to our human sensibilities. But a simple thing, a very simple thing to do is to believe Jesus' words. Jesus gives a very simple answer to the disciples when he said, this is a hard saying. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So he reaffirms exactly what he said before. No one can come to him unless it's the will of the Father. It's the Spirit that gives life. You see the Trinitarian working here of salvation. So this is the response here. Whenever people might say, what you're saying here, this is a hard saying. You're like, yeah, you're right. It can be a hard saying. 
But it's simple to believe Jesus' words. And Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so that then kind of begs the question, does this truth that it's the Spirit who gives life, it is the Father who gives people to Jesus, does that absolve man of his responsibility? The answer is no. Jesus says that in this very passage too. Jesus says that it is still man's responsibility to repent and believe. In verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Even more direct, in verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And so the crowd responds to this question. They say, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And still later on, Jesus says that those who want life have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man. So these two things can be true at the same time. It's the Spirit who gives life, but man still has a responsibility to repent and believe. (coughs) So what do these people do? So what do these people who repent and believe receive? Well, they receive Jesus himself. And upon receiving Jesus, as Jesus expounds here, they become a part of him. And then he becomes a part of them. And then because of this blessed union that we have with Jesus, the person gets eternal life. Just like Jesus is resurrected. The person gets eternal life because Jesus is resurrected and because we're united with him and because we feed upon him. So what could be greater, right? What could be greater than that? And this, this, isn't, this isn't some sort of drab, boring life where you trudge in long life, chained to Jesus, and he's just dragging you along, and you mope about the rest of your life. No, that's not what it is. This is life. It's life eternal, and this life is full, and this life is glorious. And you get to dwell with God And you get to dwell with him where there is no hunger, there is no thirst. Not only is there no hunger and no thirst, those things aren't even options. Okay, They can't happen. To feed upon the true bread of life leads to a life that is very fulfilling. Jesus makes that very clear here. This is a full life, a filled life. (coughs) So one thing that you're going to notice over the next seven evening sermons is that Jesus chooses his words very deliberately. When our Lord speaks, there are no wasted syllables. Nothing is lacking. So he does so here in choosing to label himself the bread of life because the metaphor of bread is so rich with Old Testament symbolism. I touched on some verses earlier where it says, you know, bread's a good thing, but it goes much, much deeper than that in the Old Testament. It points to a lot of very rich metaphors in Old Testament symbolism that point to a lot of New Testament realities there. (coughs) So bread is, in general, a good thing, but you have these much more deep connections with God in the Old Testament. Going back to Exodus again, you remember how God first describes manna to Moses when he told Moses that manna is going to come? God describes manna as bread from heaven. 
And Jesus calls, him the exact, Jesus calls himself the exact same thing in what we just read. So God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to send manna. This is going to be bread from heaven. Jesus calls himself the same thing. Verse 33, he says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Verses 49 and 50, he says, I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Again in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In verse 58, again, he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. It's the obvious connection here with him back to the manna, and the manna was supposed to point to Jesus Christ. The manna was a gift from the Father, just like Christ is a gift. The manna was of a divine origin, just like Christ is divine. The manna sustained life in the wilderness, just like Christ sustains life in the wilderness that we traverse through. The manna was enough for the people, right? The manna was enough for the people and no one hungered for any lack of it. There was never not enough manna. And just like Christ is enough to satisfy all of our deepest hungers. Another thing about the manna, the manna was sweet. The manna had a taste unlike anything that they could describe. It had a taste unlike anything else. So those who feast upon Christ know deeply about his sweetness And how he has a very specific savor that cannot be explained to someone who has never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Moving on from the manna, there's another significant bread in the Old Testament. The showbread, or the bread of the presence in the Old Testament Levitical system. This bread was, first and foremost, a sacrifice that was offered to God and was meant to make, a, make an atonement for both the priests and the people that were under their care. So, see it again. Jesus, just like this, is a sacrificial offering that is meant to make atonement on our behalf. Just like the showbread was holy before God and made its recipients holy, our showbread, the true bread of life, is holy before God and makes his recipients holy, us who are believers. He makes us holy before God. And just like the showbread was always present, if you remember about the showbread, it was always supposed to be there. There were specific Levites that their only task was to be continuously making showbread. And just like the showbread was always present in the tabernacle and temple, our showbread is always present, ready to nourish, ready to sanctify. <clears throat> and then one last Old Testament connection. Children. Who knows what city Jesus was born in? You could tell me. What city was Jesus born in? Bethlehem. That's right. Bethlehem. This was prophesied in Micah chapter 5. Well, who knows what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? Hebrew scholars cannot answer. Beth means house or house of, and lehem means bread. House of bread. So, isn't that just poetically beautiful that our bread of life would be born in the house of bread? Right? I mean, that's just too beautiful to not include here. And so, that concludes all the Old Testament connections. The other reason why this bread metaphor is, is so important is that it really communicates across cultures, across geography, and across time periods. You'll notice that a lot, a lot of times when Jesus talks and when he make, t- tells us parables and when he tells 
uh, his followers other things, he makes a lot of references to agriculture and food. And this is important because all of the ideas are relevant to every culture, they're relevant to every people group, and they're relevant in absolutely any time period that you can look across history or into the future. Because everyone needs food and they need the ability to grow food. And you can go back a thousand years to the deepest tribe in the Amazon and you can explain to them that this bread that you're eating only provides temporary nourishment. But the person that feeds upon Christ, that man lives forever. Everyone can understand this. Not everyone's going to believe it, but everyone can understand it. So Jesus wants to keep things simple and give no one an excuse for not understanding. And so he does so very well here with his metaphor of him being the bread of life. Everyone can understand this. And so there's, there's a lot of repetition in this passage too. Jesus makes a lot of claims in this passage. <clears throat> a lot of claims that would be very surprising. A lot of claims that maybe even might be blasphemous to those that are hearing him but not understanding him. He says, those that feed upon him will never hunger and thirst again. He says, those that refuse to do this will never have any life in them. He says, those who do feed upon him are going to live forever. And he's going to personally resurrect them on the last day. And most significantly, he says that he came down from heaven. Other words, that he is God that has come into the world. And so whenever a person encounters Jesus Christ, that person has to make a decision about the claims that Jesus makes about himself. It is an agreed upon historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was a person. He was a historical person that existed in history. No, you can disregard any person that would tell you otherwise. No serious person would, would claim otherwise. The four Gospels are eyewitness testimonies of his life and words. So when a person is presented with the things that Jesus says about himself, not just the things that I just said that he says in this passage, but all the things that Jesus says about himself, the person has really three options now. These three options are, one, that this Jesus is a liar that formed one of the most successful cults in history. Two, that this Jesus is just a raving lunatic and just needs to be ignored. Or three, that this Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the Son of Man and Son of God. He exists from eternity past. He has come into the world to save sinners and to be the bread of life to those that would feed upon him. I believe number three. Anyone that is in the kingdom believes number three. I hope you do too. We believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Like verse 29 says, We have believed in him whom God has sent, and this is the work of God. We know that Jesus is the bread of life. We know that feeding upon him is the only thing that could truly satisfy our souls. We know that God has spread out a feast of himself and has invited us to the table to come and dine with him. We know that we have eternal life and we know that we will be resurrected on the last day. We have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. <clears throat> and so I have a question then. 
I have a question for those of you who are here, for those of you who are listening elsewhere who do not know Jesus. Those of you who Jesus says, work for food that is perishing and not food that endures. You who have not believed in him who God had sent. You who have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You who have not eaten of the bread of life. We heard this morning about the realities of hell. They're terrifying. My question to you is, why? We heard about the realities of hell, and now we hear about the good things. The good things that feeding upon Jesus gives you. It allows you an escape from that, for salvation from that, but it also gives you all of this. Why would you reject something that is so free and so freeing? Why would you reject this person that satisfies the soul so deeply? Why would you continue to work for food that just rots and decays instead of the one that gives that which allows you to never be hungry again? Why would you continue to wallow in your sins when you have a free offer of forgiveness before you? It's the opportunity to cry out to God today to repent and be reconciled to him. He is just and righteous and is quick to forgive sins. But like Jesus says, only if you believe in him whom he has sent. Only if you feed upon the broken flesh and drink the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The bread that came down from heaven and the bread that gives life itself. So I would urge you to feed upon this Jesus. So now that I've addressed the unbelievers, let me provide in closing some inspiration and encouragement to all the saints here. I'm going to close by looking at appropriate responses to the words of Jesus here. We're going to close with two passages of Scripture that illustrate how a person reacts to the outstanding claims that Jesus has made. How a person that is a believer reacts to these things. And we're going to look at those reactions from a person who witnessed them firsthand, the Apostle Peter. We're going to look at two of Peter's confessions here. The first one comes immediately following our passage for this sermon. So we're going to read another passage of Scripture here from John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verses 60 through 69, this is what it says. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come unto me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What a response. To whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I can't, I can't even elaborate on that. Right? I can't expand that. That's such a straightforward and clear and honest and beautiful confession that I even have to read it for a third time. I'm going to read it for a third time here. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When a person truly encounters Jesus and truly believes his claims, this can be the only appropriate response here. and has to be wonder and awe at the Holy One of God. And then you realize it, and you confess that there is nowhere else to go. So let this be our prayer every morning when we wake up. Lord, to whom shall we go but you? You have the words of eternal life. And then for the second confession of Peter, we're going to go outside the book of John. And I'm going to connect it back to how we open the sermon. We open the sermon in John chapter 8 with Jesus' broad I am statement where he claims to be God. And like I said, I'm going to remind you of that every one of my sermons that I open up with these I am statements. And I'm probably going to remind you of the following episode too. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to read verses 13 through 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? I'm going to take a brief pause right here and tell you that in the uh, parallel accounts in Luke and Mark, in Luke 9, And Mark 8, the way that it's recorded there is Jesus says, who did the people say that I am? Okay, Matthew, it's translated here, who did the people say that the Son of Man is? Continuing on in verse 14, and they say, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. So he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me ask you, who do you say that he is, that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's the only only response you can utter to that. If you truly know him, if you truly believe in him, the Christ, the son of the living God, has come to offer salvation and to be the bread of life for all who would feed upon him. Christ, the Son of the living God. We know who Jesus is. We understand why this I am is so important to who we are. Because without him, we aren't. And with him, we are. So remember that this week, saints. Remember that he is our everything. Remember that he is the only source of eternal life. We believe upon him. We feast upon him. We remember that the Son of the living God has offered himself up as a sacrifice And his body and his blood are our only true nourishment. That's it. He is the one that truly satisfies. We will never be hungry. We will never be thirsty again. So let us always remember to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
and to feed upon this bread of life. Let's pray. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, how beautiful are your words. Lord, thank you for reminding us where we are and who we depend upon. Thank you for reminding us that we can feed upon nothing else other than your Son. He is the only one that has promised to take away our hunger, to take away our thirst, to make sure our souls are filled, to make sure that we lack nothing. Lord, remind us that if we keep our eyes upon him, that we will not, that we are everything in him. And with him dwelling in us, we can also dwell with you. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Thank you for sending your Holy One to save us. Drive that into our hearts. For those who do not know, I pray for them. I pray that they know this. I pray that they feed upon your word and they feed upon the bread of life. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.